The big matchup has finally been set. And no, I'm not talking about Trump and Biden's rematch. I'm talking about the rematch between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers in the NFL's 58th Super Bowl next Sunday. Now, no offense to either of those teams' fan bases, but eternally speaking, I don't think the big game has as much eternal significance, and I don't think God in heaven cares a great deal about the outcome of the game, regardless of players and coaches claiming that God was on their side. However, I do think the game has some societal implications, perhaps more this year than before. And this is specifically because of the leagues and the network's um, exploitation of Travis Kelsey's love life with Taylor Swift. And we're just going to put all the conspiracy theories aside, okay? But allow me to explain for all the, the Swifties out there the disdain of this relationship on behalf of just average football fans and conservatives and, and Christians, etc. So hear me out, Swifties. Taylor Swift has nothing to do with football. Football fans want football, not Taylor Swift. Fans were worn out in the past almost decade with relentless agenda-driven messaging, which diluted the game for countless fans and viewers who just wanted to watch football. Regardless of her independent status, um, philosophically and politically, Swift is somewhat liberal to an extent. Uh, I detailed this back in August. Last year, she cast a, a transgender person to play the man with whom she's depicted in bed with in her music video for Lavender Haze. In the past, she's been a proponent of radical gender theory and LGBTQ plus rights and radical feminism and abortion. I've described her lyrics as the, the airings out of dirty relationship laundry, uh, the pop music equivalent to tabloid magazines. And this is nothing new. I mean, people who primarily operate from their, their base desires and appetites are frequently infatuated with celebrities and their ensuing drama. And I, as I'm sure along with many others, don't feel like glorifying or idolizing someone who has a different boyfriend every year or every six months or, or quite frankly, uses men as a publicity stunt. Now, don't get me wrong. We know she's a, a very talented musician and writer and performer. There's no denying that. I would much rather you listen to Taylor Swift's music than Doja Cat's music, for example. But as is traditional with super mega artists throughout history, they can be quite controversial and divisive. In other words, people either love her or not. I mean, actually, in this case, people are either obsessively enamored with her or they're just indifferent to her. The latter is the side that most of us are on. Now, this same group was also either indifferent to or opposed to the tyranny and controversy surrounding the vaccinations for which Travis Kelsey was a proponent and spokesperson. However, there's also this article from the Baltimore Sun that people are talking about. Um, in fact, the, these people are big fans of, of Taylor Swift. But this is an opinion piece from Henry Farkas. Uh, listen to this. The piece is titled, Forget Kamala Harris Put Taylor Swift on Joe Biden's Ticket. So Farkas says, It turns out that Swift will be 35 years old on December 13th, 2024. Her net worth at, at the moment is $1.1 billion, so she can afford to take what for her would be a volunteer job, she should seriously consider running for vice president. You might think that this is a tongue-in-cheek recommendation, but think about it. Democracy could come to an end. Well, we've heard that before. In America, if Donald Trump is elected, Vice President Kamala Harris should step aside <laughs> for the good of the nation. Putting Swift on the ticket will dramatically boost voter registration among Democrats. Dramatically. 
Nobody has any doubts about Taylor Swift's intelligence. If she starts now, she could learn everything she needs to know before stepping from the entertainment arena to the political arena. Vote Biden Swift in November. Yeah, so just add to that intelligent piece. This research from Newsweek, who commissioned a survey of about 1,500 eligible voters in which they determined the following. Exclusive polling conducted for Newsweek by Redfield and Wilton Strategies found that 18% of voters say they are more likely or significantly more likely to vote for a candidate endorsed by Swift. In other words, Time Magazine's Person of the Year, the top performer of the year, and Travis Kelsey's girlfriend has a massive political influence over 20% of American voters. Now, I don't know if I buy the conclusions of this survey because the Biden campaign tried this very thing in 2020 with Taylor, you know, posting a picture of herself with Biden-Harris cookies, the caption, trashing Donald Trump. And, and the data then only showed she moved about 35,000 votes. That would be like the whole city of Cookville voting for Biden because Taylor Swift told them to. In other words, this has already happened. It's already happened before. So I, I don't know if she has all that much influence in 2024. In fact, I would argue that Taylor's political influence is less significant now than before. Plus, she, she has amassed countless fans all over the world. I doubt at this point that she would willingly alienate what is likely a large swath of her fan base by wading once again into the political waters. And I think that consumers are the most annoyed they've ever been at being targeted with an agenda everywhere they go, especially when they go to their places of retreat like the entertainment industry. In other words, people are getting tired of politics. So that logically leads me to believe Taylor will stay out of this mess, but I could be totally wrong. However, most of us, former football players and, and football fans, just want football to be football. Therefore, an alliance has been born. Football fans, conservatives, anti-establishment, anti-tyrannical, Christians, Republicans, lucid moderates, and chiefs, rivals, we have a deal to propose to the 49ers. And I'm, I'm quoting Rogan O'Hanley here. Dear San Francisco 49ers, I know we've all been roasting your city for years, but I'm offering a two-week truce. No more jokes about poop on the streets and open-air drug markets. No calling out the record levels of homelessness that magically disappeared for three days to welcome a communist dictator. None of that. For two weeks, 99% of America will be 49ers fans. But in return, you must... You must defeat the Chiefs. You can let us know if you accept this offer via email. Now, I'm Blake Watson, and this is We The Free. One of the best ways you can help our show other than by sharing the content is by picking up some We The Free merch at wethefreeshow.com. You can be the salt and light you are meant to be by wearing the salt and light shirt or by sipping your coffee from the salt and light mug, or you can sport the God Bless America shirt and of course the classic We The Free Crest tee. We've even got stickers and a smells like freedom candle, that's right. So check out our new merch at wethefreeshow.com. Com. This is the first day of February, which means a number of things. Groundhog Day is tomorrow. The Super Bowl is in 10 days. Valentine's is just a couple weeks away, followed by my wife's birthday. But those are just days on the calendar. The whole month, however, is Black History Month. So in the, the spirit of Black History Month, here's one of my favorite clips in the face of modern racism and segregation. Black History Month you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come well, on. What no. do you do with yours? 
What, which month is White History Month? No, well, no, 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 come on, tell me. Well, the, I'm Jewish. Okay, which I'm month is Jewish History Month? No, there isn't one. Oh, oh, why not? Yeah. Do you want one? No, no, no. I, 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 I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? Until Stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. Black history is American history. Why would we relegate a celebration of Black History Month to a single month, he asks. And how do we fix racism? Well, Morgan Freeman said, stop talking about it, which is exactly the same thing Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of and talked about. But that's no good for the politicians who want to keep us divided for their benefit. The worst thing for our power-hungry, money-thirsty leaders is for everybody to get along, because then they don't have any problems to solve. In other words, happy February. Let's get to some news. Perhaps the most important bit of news in the homeland is that of the conflict between Texas and the federal government. This is a prime example of the brilliance of the founders that each state would operate autonomously within the United States. It's an instance of federalism at its finest, but we have to go back a few weeks ago to an open letter sent to Congress by two retired intelligence officials, Kevin Brock and Chris Swecker. I'm going to read some of this for context. They said, as former senior executives of the Federal Bureau of Investigation with deep experience combating dangers to the nation, we write to express our concern about a current specific threat that may be one of the most pernicious ever to menace the United States. The threat we call out today is new and unfamiliar. In its modern history, the U.S. has never suffered an invasion of the homeland, and yet one is unfolding right now. Military-aged men from across the globe many from countries or regions not friendly to the, to the United States, are landing in waves on our soil by the thousands, not by splashing ashore from a ship or parachuting from a plane, but rather by foot across a border that has been accurately advertised around the world as largely unprotected with ready access granted. It would be difficult to overstate the danger represented by the presence inside our borders of what is comparatively a multi-division army of young single adult males from hostile nations and regions whose background, intent, or allegiance is completely unknown. In light of such a daunting, unprecedented penetration by uninvited foreign actors, it is reasonable to assert that the country possesses dramatically diminished national security at this time. The nation's military and laws and other natural protective barriers that have provided traditional security in the past have been thoroughly circumvented over the past three years. In other words, what they're describing is a massive national security issue, and they further clarify their reasoning. In 2021, the demographics of those crossing the porous southern boundary started to shift Young men from around the world traveling alone and holding questionable motivations dramatically increased in number to become the most common profile of those breaching the nation's borders. A startling number have been found on the terror watch list or are from countries designated as state sponsors of terror distinctly unfriendly to the United States. And yet, this very real concern does not seem to be getting the focus it logically deserves. The director of the FBI has correctly assessed an elevated threat level since October 7th. So as we'll talk more about later, the described threat level has risen since the Hamas attacks on Israel in October. The United States is practically viewed as synonymous with the state of Israel, and just as the Islamic Republic of Iran supported and funded and helped orchestrate those attacks, they may do the same through an infiltration of our southern border. Additionally, 
They're not just from terror-linked regions, but from China and Russia as well. Hostile adversaries of the U.S. with aspirations to devastate national infrastructure. Now, what evidence do they have for such claims? I'm not sure. Their point is that our known enemies throughout the world are evidently entering the U.S. without resistance, or at least they're attempting to do so. They say, For these reasons, elements of this recent surge are likely no accident or coincidence. These men are potential operators in what appears to be an accelerated and strategic penetration, a soft invasion designed to gain internal access to a country that cannot be invaded militarily in order to inflict catastrophic damage if and when enemies deem it necessary. This now raises the question as to what they propose to do against this threat. They said, The borders need to be secured against these young men and those already here illegally must be identified and removed without delay. This will take the coordinated, cooperative efforts of the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and the rest of the intelligence community to achieve. Then they closed their letter writing the following. Until it is stopped, the United States is extraordinarily less safe and secure. Knowing all of this, it would be a shameful travesty if some terrible attack, a preventable attack, were to occur against innocent Americans or the infrastructure that keeps the nation safe and functioning. The government will have failed grievously in its duty to protect. And all of this goes without mentioning the other numerous problems with the ignorance of the legal immigration process and our sovereign southern boundary. Human trafficking, drug trafficking, exploitation of the citizenry, etc. This is the very reason why Republicans and even some Democrats are seeking to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, though I don't think that doing so is going to inflict any serious changes. So uh, what should be the Christian response to all of this? We're going to answer that question momentarily, but first, let's take a look at this situation in Texas. Long story short, Texas, being a, a vast border state, is doing everything it can to put an end to this, but the federal government is trying to stop Texas from doing its part in protecting its own citizens, and in, in turn the citizens of the United States. Yes, the Supreme Court just made an idiotic ruling on, on razor wire fencing, but that's not as relevant to our conversation today. In September, I explained this administration's position on immigration, that it's buried deep within the academic study of critical theory, specifically Latino critical theory, or Lat Crid. Just go back and watch or listen to that episode. It's episode seven, which is a, a full treatise on replacement theory. Yes, regardless of Democrat projection, projection and, and media slandering, Replacement theory is a very real thing, and no, it wasn't concocted by conservatives who oppose illegal immigration. In fact, it perfectly explains the Biden administration's lax approach to border security, which is unfortunately being exploited by criminals and enemies around the world, not just from Central America. So please go back and listen to or watch that episode to understand the scholarship behind this theory, which is unfolding before our, our eyes. But let's continue with Texas. Governor Abbott and the state of Texas are defying the orders of the federal government. The Texas Tribune writes this. The Biden administration has repeatedly cut wire that Texas installed to stop illegal crossings, opening the floodgates to illegal immigrants. The absence of razor wire and other deterrence strategies encourage, encourages migrants to, to make unsafe and illegal crossings between ports of entry. While making the job of Texas National Guard soldiers and DPS troopers uh, more dangerous and difficult, this case is ongoing and Governor Abbott will continue fighting to defend Texas's property and its constitutional authority to secure the border. Since 2021, Abbott's Operation Lone Star initiative has created tension between the state and federal government. Under the operation, Abbott has deployed state troopers across the 1,200-mile 
Texas-Mexico border. Ordered state police to arrest migrants who are suspected of, of trespassing. Uh, spent $11 million to install 70,000 rolls of concertina wire along the Rio Grande. And spent $1.5 billion on about a dozen miles of border walls. Now here's where this situation gets a little sticky. Uh, the feds apparently cut through parts of this wire to assist migrants. Okay? The Tribune says, As migrants have attempted to get through the wire, Border Patrol has cut through parts of the barrier to assist injured people. Attorney General Ken Paxton filed a lawsuit against DHS claiming federal agents had illegally destroyed state property. Now this right here, this is specifically what the Supreme Court got involved in, with the majority of justices simply claiming that the feds have the, the freedom or the constitutional right to do what they see fit to do with the border, the fence, the boundary. Uh, they weren't saying that Texas could not install barriers or wires or walls, um, only that Texas couldn't you know, stop the feds or sue the feds for cutting through it. Therefore, the, the surface-level argument between the federal government and the state of Texas is saying, we're going to take whatever measures necessary to defend Texans and their property, and by extension, U.S. citizens, while the federal position is, if someone's trying to get into the country, we're going to help them, period. So Texas's Attorney General Ken Paxton said, the Supreme Court's temporary order allows Biden to continue his illegal effort to aid the foreign invasion of America. Paxton said in a statement, the destruction of Texas, Texas's border uh, barriers will not, will not help enforce the law or keep American citizens safe. This fight is not over, and I look forward to defending our state's sovereignty. And this is where we've come to a critical impasse. One side clearly recognizes we have a serious problem with illegal border crossing, as in thousands per day. That's millions of unknowns within the country in, in just a few short years, which is precisely the concern of the congressional letter from Kevin Brock and Chris Swecker. The other side simply has zero problem with everybody and anybody coming in whenever and however they want. They don't care about the, the national security risks. They don't care about the millions of moochers intentionally remaining as unknown so as to exploit the American systems for wealth. They don't care about law and order. They don't care about the human trafficking. They don't care about the drug trafficking. They don't care about the massive strain on American resources. They don't care about anything except their false humanitarianism and their virtue signaling. That's what they care about. So with all of this in mind, what side are the Christians to be on? And, and what in general should be the Christian position on immigration? Well, for starters, there is a massive fundamental difference between immigration and invasion. Immigration is like knocking on the door and asking to come inside. Invasion is breaking in through the back door. Immigration is the owner of the house telling you his expectations. He says, you're welcome to come in, but here's the rules of the house. Invasion is skirting the expectation. It's lawlessness. Immigration is a contribution. Invasion is theft. Therefore, proponents for border security, please hear me, proponents for border security are not anti-immigrant or opposed to immigration. We are opposed to illegal entry and illegal residence. That is to say that most Americans are opposed to the lawlessness of it. And we're intelligent enough and educated enough to know that we have all arrived here by the same means. Which brings me to the Christian worldview. Back in September, we discussed that Christians must oppose lawlessness. 
Scripture makes that abundantly clear. The, the holiness and righteousness of God makes that outrageously clear. For God's sake, how many times were the ancient world and, and the Israelites judged for their lawlessness? How many times were we shown in uh, shown the eternal outcome of lawlessness in the New Testament, including in Revelation? In fact, lawlessness or evil is the only thing that Christians are to hate, literally. Read it for yourselves in Psalm 97.10, Proverbs 8.13, Romans 12.9, Amos 5.15. And then take a look at the, the biblical prescriptions for government in Romans 13. Look, I'll, I'll read it for you. Pay attention to Paul's description of the righteous government as servants of God, like they're doing God's work. It says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you, for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, meaning the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. There are currently high volumes of people, thousands per day, that are residing in the United States unlawfully. Millions there. And I'm not talking about those that are living here under legal processes, but are not yet citizens of the United States. Those people are not violating any laws. But LATCRIT, the Latino immigration form of critical theory, is opening up the floodgates and literally the southern border for all sorts of illegality and evil, which, again, the Christian must oppose simply on the basis of being subject to two authorities, the United States Constitution and the Word of God. Look at what the Bible says about immigrants or what is commonly described as foreigners. This is what Exodus 23.9 says. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. The context here is that Moses is speaking to the Israelites who desired the, the promised land, the, the land that God had long since promised to them, but for a time was held captive and held in, in the bondage of slavery in the land of Egypt, who at that time was the global superpower, you know, economically and philosophically. So for the Israelites, Egypt was not their real home. They didn't, they didn't want to be there, but eventually they were freed. They knew exactly what it felt like to be oppressed in a foreign land. I mean, they were literally slaves to the Egyptians. So Moses is reminding them of this feeling of, of criminal treatment they received, and he's encouraging them to not treat foreigners in their midst that same way. In other words, don't treat the stranger or the foreigner or the visitor or the migrant unjustly. The difference, though, in our situation are the masses of people who want to be here, but unjustly seek to take advantage of our American amenities, which is, quite frankly, unfair to the millions of immigrants. Listen, it is un entirely unfair to the millions of immigrants who did things the right way. That is one of the many injustices here. So the just and right reaction to those strangers is to punish their unlawfulness. On the other hand, 
the correct response for the remainder of those who are trying to go through the proper channels and processes, they should be rewarded for their justness and welcomed into our beloved country with open arms. In case you're not paying attention to what I'm saying, liberals, please listen to me. We don't care who comes into this country as long as they're doing it the right way. Knock on the door. Ask to come in. Commit to our standards of living in the United States. Pay your dues. Become an American. Apparently, the majority of Americans agree with me. That's why at least half of the country's governors mustered enough fortitude to support the governor of Texas, while the rest of them are cowards. And Congress is unwilling to act. This is, all of this is totally an impeachable offense. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about Mayorkas. That's a waste of time. I'm talking about Joseph Robinette Biden. Do the Republicans and the moderate Democrats in Congress have the intestinal fortitude to remove the president? For giving aid and comfort to our enemies? Potentially levying war against our states, facilitating an endless barrage of crimes and misdemeanors against these United States, especially the border states. And, you know, isn't Kamala Harris responsible for immigration? Let's throw her out while we're at it, because here's how the global chips are falling. All right? Just keep track of this. Biden is guilty for practically all, all of the global destabilization, including the Middle East conflict, which he's about to further irritate with a reported response to Iran's recent attack on American troops. Now, connect the dots here. He has simultaneously advertised to the world our vulnerable southern border, meaning that if and when Iran wishes an assault on American soil, let's say, there's nothing stopping them. These are the pots and pans Kevin Brock and Chris Swecker are clanging. This is the alarm that Texas is sounding. And this is what we, the free, are speaking up about. Speaking of an invasion or an internal attack, perhaps a more serious threat is that of the pandemic of pornographic obsession. Now, allow me to start with the, the statistical basis. This is information from an organization called Covenant Eyes, which shows that nearly 30,000 users are viewing pornography uh, this second. About $3,000 is spent on this sort of material every single second. $3,000 every second. 90% of teens... It seems insane to, to read through these, but just hear me out. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about pornography with their friends. Only 55% of adults believe pornography is wrong. Teens and young adults, 13 through 24, believe not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. And a minority feel pornography is bad for society. So the majority of people do not. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 64% of Christian men, 15% of Christian women. Only 7% of pastors report their church has a ministry program for those struggling with porn. Only 7%. Nearly 30% of teens receive sext, you know, a text message with sexual content. Um, over half of teenagers search for porn at least monthly, 
the first exposure to pornography among men is 12 years old on average. Over 70% of teens hide online behavior from their parents. 70%. More than half of divorces, more than half, I think it's 56% of divorces, involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And I could go on and on and on and on about this marriage-killing, personally paralyzing, mind-numbing, sex-destroying, soul-wrecking, women-objectifying, men-enslaving, child-trafficking, multi-billion-dollar industrial monster. So I will. This is the real pandemic. This is a real one. And it's not just in everyone's pockets. It's, it's not only on just about every screen and visual medium known to man. It's also festering its way into your kids' classrooms and libraries. And finally, someone is doing something to address the pandemic of pornography. Now reading from the Beacon Herald. Republican Dusty Devers has introduced an act in the state legislature that would prohibit people in Oklahoma from producing or disseminating unlawful pornography, including sexual intercourse, which is normal, in any print, film, or digital format. Each of the items of unlawful pornography are depictions of sexual con conduct which are patently offensive under contemporary community standards in the state and have as their dominant theme an appeal to purient interests in sex, the bill says. People in Oklahoma who act, photograph, pose, or model could be charged, including those who exhibit and publish pornographic content and face up to a year in prison and at least a $2,000 fine. Now, even so-called Republican lawmakers and so-called libertarians will side with the liberals against this as some sort of protection against or protection for free speech. As if photographing yourself, having sex or nude is an act of speech. Give me a break. A few weeks ago, I spent an entire episode explaining the divine limits of, of true liberty and what the founders and framers meant by the word liberty or by the word freedom. It's a lot of history and philosophy packed into 60 minutes, but I, I highly recommend you listen or watch. But in that episode, I explained that liberty is the freedom to pursue good ends, good ends of your own choice within the limits or bounds of natural and divine law. Not to just do whatever you want to do. The traditional word to describe this was virtue. And Dr. Glenn S. Sunshine explains this further, saying, Virtue was an important word to the founders. For centuries, it had been recognized that virtue was essential to the survival of a republic, because without virtue, People begin to make decisions out of greed, pride, self-interest, and the result is inevitably the collapse of the Republic. True liberty must therefore be undergirded by a virtuous population, and liberty must be used to develop and promote virtue. There are a lot of things Americans do in the name of liberty that are completely opposed to virtuosity. But this brings us to a critical distinction between these two opposing terms, liberty and license, Dr. Sunshine explained. The alternative to liberty is license. License is negative freedom. That is, freedom from restraint. Licentious people pursue their desires without regard for any rules or restrictions on their behavior. Freedom to them means that no one can tell them what to do or to tell them that what they're doing is wrong. So the words license and licentious come from the same 
Latin, which basically means unrestrained. This is not what liberty really means. Liberty has, has been clearly understood to mean freedom within restraint. License is to be without restraint. So getting back to this discussion about pornography and Oklahoma Senator Deavers, he said, for far too long, civil society has conflated liberty for license. These bills are aimed at strengthening the God-instituted bedrock of society, that is, the family, a strong, prosperous, and flourishing society, depends on strong families. Why is he talking about the family? Because pornography is destroying families in numerous ways. It's destroying marriages. It's preventing marriages. It's screwing up kids. It's preventing children from even coming into existence. And Deaver's point is that family, family, is the bedrock of civilization. And he's right. I'm telling you, this is one of the foremost plagues in the world and against the soul. And hardly anyone is, is saying or doing anything to stop it. The Beacon Herald concluded with some of the specifics, saying, The bill also strengthens penalties for watching, obtaining, or, buy, or buying child pornography. If found guilty, viol violators could be imprisoned for up to 20 years and fined up to $25,000, along with being registered as a sex offender. Repeat offenders could face up to 30 years in prison. Now, personally, I think this is great. And I would love to see this adopted, not just in Oklahoma, but across the Fruited Plains. Because it's not going anywhere. In fact, it's about to get much worse with the onslaught of things like virtual reality. So let's cut this off at the root and make the world a much better place. Speaking of nudity, Sports Illustrated is swirling around the drain as, as most of its staff received layoff notices a few weeks ago. Now, there's a complicated financial explanation for this, but I can state it fairly simply for everyone. The magazine was not making enough money. Why is that? Well, I hate to keep using this phrase, but it's become so common in public lingo. Sports Illustrated is, is yet another example of go woke, go broke. I can literally list it out for you. It, it was supposed to be a magazine about, get this, sports. I, I know it's crazy. Sports Illustrated is supposed to be about sports. And yet, uh, once a year, they released a special swimsuit edition with popular models posing on the beach. I mean... This goes all the way back to the 60s, the 1960s. But then in, in 2016, they started using uh, plus size or overweight models for all the body positivity people. In 2021, that was the first time they featured within the magazine a transgender model, also known as a, a man pretending to be a woman. And, and then in 2023, a transgender person was the cover model. So literally the cover of the magazine. So you have this stuff uh, with the modeling, but, but that's just one of the 12 or so issues that are published throughout the year. Here's another mistake they made. Adweek reported the following. Here's the headline was, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Promotes Gender Equality with New Advertising Requirements. So in that piece, they wrote this. The need for gender equality is at such a critical point that one platform is willing to give up ad dollars to fight for it. Okay, that, that was practically prophetic, but let's keep going. To promote and encourage gender equality, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit announced a new advertising mandate which will only allow brands driving the cause forward to be featured in the magazine's annual print issue as well as across its digital footprint. Well, it turns out that this was a critical mistake because these companies need ad dollars. They, they need these advertisers to stay in business. There's much greater money from people 
paying to advertise on your site and, and in your magazine than you get from subscription fees, etc. So you can obviously see how that turned out. It seems uh, businesses didn't want to work with them. So you add that loss to the subscriber loss that surely ensued the overweight and trans models. But wait, there's more. Much of the staff at Sports Illustrated, including possibly all of its writers, received layoff notices. According to the union representing the workers at the publication, the layoffs come less than two months after the magazine was caught publishing AI-generated stories, authors, and photos. So add to the woke images and the woke ad standards the lack of actual effort by, by humans a report by Futurism in November revealed that Sports Illustrated appeared to have been publishing AI-generated content attributed to fake authors, complete with bogus biographies and headshots. When asked about the content by Futurism, Sports Illustrated allegedly deleted the AI-created writers and profiles along with the content generated by AI. And after all of this, uh, Ross Levinson, the CEO of Sports Illustrated, was fired. Uh, look, we have tried to warn you all. That's why the phrase is becoming so popular. If you choose to go woke, which is to say you involve yourself in political matters that are irrelevant to your business, then you will indeed find yourself broke. And, you know, this, this speaks to the, the Taylor Swift stuff I was talking about earlier. People are getting sick and tired of being preached at by the left. And it's because of things like this. National brands putting it in our faces and on our screens and on the radio and over the airways. We are tired of it. And we're not just going to stop supporting you. We're going to make sure that others join us. Now, on the subject of, of losing trust in things, Americans are having a harder time trusting anyone these days, including pastors. Kate Shelnut has written an article uh, reviewing the data results from a recent Gallup poll asking participants their perception of clergy, or what we just call pastors. But first, I'm going to show you this graph. For those that are listening, the graph shows the percentage of Americans who say clergy have high or very high levels of honesty and ethics. It shows the whole span of this information through the years 1977 and 2023. When the survey was first conducted in 77, 61% of respondents showed a high level of trust in clergy. But now, 46 years later, only 32% demonstrate that level of trust in clergy. So it's almost half the amount of people in less than 50 years. So let's see what Kate Shelnut's analysis of all this is, but I want to know why you think there is a significant lack of trust in clergy. Shelnut writes, People are more likely to believe in the moral standards held by nurses, police officers, and chiropractors than their religious leaders. Clergy are still more trusted than politicians and lawyers and journalists. The continued drop in pastors' reputation, down from 40% to 32% over the last four years, corresponds with more skepticism toward professions and institutions across the board. Americans are also less likely than ever to know a pastor, with fewer than half belonging to a church and a growing cohort who don't identify with the faith at all. So we see two reasons there. Uh, the first being a complete drop of trust in all professions, which we can speculate about because that's interesting all in itself. And secondly, there are significantly less people who know pastors because they don't belong to a church. And, and don't get me started on that subject. So <laughs> we're going to focus on the article. As American culture becomes increasingly pluralistic and post-Christian, we can't assume that Americans in general default to a positive view of clergy, said Nathan Finn, executive director of the Institute for Transformational Leadership 
at North Greenville University. Ministers must work harder to gain public trust than was the case even a generation ago. Now, this is a great point. America has become increasingly non-Christian. Again, this is the fault of the church, but don't get me started. This means that Americans are progressively worldly, which is diametrically opposed to godliness, which obviously would entail an animosity toward and a lack of trust or faith in the leaders of the church. Finn also pointed out how scandals like clergy sex abuse, growing political polarization, and evangelicals' countercultural moral positions can contribute to the decline in credibility among clergy, especially among those who have either had bad church experiences or whose worldview assumptions are already at odds with historic Christian beliefs. I know what they're trying to say here, but this is a misattribution. The, tr- the church is absolutely required to engage in cultural and political issues, but it has done a terrible job at that, and that's mostly because we drug our feet and didn't get ahead of the game. We're, we're late to it. We weren't the salt and light we were supposed to be. Countless cultural problems have ensued, and now we're trying to play catch-up, but we're doing it terribly. We just have to do it like Jesus did, loaded with grace and truth. I, I get the, the sex abuse reaction, but I think that's more so focused denominationally and in small circles. But now back to the article. Views of pastors did vary by generation. Elder millennials and Gen X were most cynical. Fewer than a quarter of people between ages 35 and 54 had a positive view of clergy ethics compared to 38% of older Americans and 30% of those under 35. Positive perception of clergy among young people jumped by 10% points compared to 2022. Well, that last part is good, but the rest of that information supports the idea concerning the generational progression away from Christianity and the church. They also said, though, Previous polling has shown that people tend to trust their own pastor more than pastors overall. According to Barna Research, nearly two-thirds of Americans have a very positive opinion of a pastor they have a personal connection with, compared to a quarter who said the same about pastors in general. Well, that's interesting, and I'm, I'm really curious to know what you think, so, so please leave me a comment, but uh, the majority of Americans, it's saying, trust their own pastor, but not so much other pastors. To me, uh, that says this this distrust is almost like a default, but their pastor has earned their trust, maybe? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, when I think about it, I I pretty much feel the same way. I, I trust my pastor, but I know that I have significantly less trust in other clergy. But why is that? There's the secular explanation that America is fleeing God and His his church, but why is trust eroding on the local level of the church internally? And why has it progressively eroded for 50 years? Just leave me a comment and send me an email. I'm Blake at wethefreeshow.com. But that's going to do it for me today. What will it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we will see you next time on We The Free.